Clear and Vivid is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. A gravitational wave or gravity wave can be thought of, I think, most nicely as a stretching and squeezing of space and everything in that space then gets stretched and squeezed. As the wave passes through me, say from my face, uh, front of my face to the back, it stretches my face, say horizontally and squeezes my face vertically. And then at the next moment, it stretches vertically and squeezes horizontally, but it's such a tiny stretch and squeeze that you'll never notice it. Kip Thorne has been searching for that tiny squeeze from space, a gravitational wave, for much of his life. Einstein predicted the existence of gravitational waves in 1916 in his general theory of relativity. But it wasn't until September 2015 that giant detectors in Washington State and Louisiana finally picked up a slight rustle in space-time. It was coming from the collision of two black holes over a billion years ago in a galaxy far, far away. In our conversation, Kip tells me why detecting gravitational waves was so hard and why it will be so important in our understanding of the origin of the universe. And he also recalls helping me understand the mind of another great physicist, Richard Feynman, when I played Feynman on the stage, as well as why he suggested that wormholes could solve a problem with the plot of the hit movie Interstellar. Kip, this is so great to be able to talk to you again. We've had some wonderful conversations in the past. We have. I have great memories. You've taught me a lot about communicating. (laughs) I kind of doubt it. Most especially how to prepare beforehand. No kidding. Yeah, you, you go pee first and you loosen yourself up. (laughs) by laughing (laughs) that's funny and I passed that on to many people well it's funny because that's just what I just did (laughs) (laughs) me too (laughs) that's so great you know what what's wonderful about this you've been awarded aside from many other great prizes the Nobel Prize yes I awarded the Nobel Prize as an icon for a team of a thousand people I never want to forget them I know, and and the Kavli Prize as well. Did you get the Kavli Prize before the Nobel or the other way around? Oh, no. Kavli came first. Absolutely. They they knew what they were doing. (laughs) Well, what's so amazing about what you got both of those awards for, amazing to me, is that you were following up on an idea of Einstein's almost a hundred years earlier. Am I right about that? It took a hundred years to to detect what he said probably existed. Absolutely right. It was precisely 100 years when we announced the first discovery of gravitational waves. It was precisely a hundred years after uh, his uh, prediction. So just so we're on a semi-even footing, what's a gravity wave? (laughs) Well, so I remind you, an electromagnetic wave is something like light. It is physically, it's an oscillating electric force and magnetic force that go traveling through the universe at a very fast speed, the speed of light. 
is the same thing, but for gravity. It's an oscillating gravitational force, but not the kind of gravitational force that you and I normally think of that pulls us to the Earth. Because we can make that gravitational force go away by just falling. If you're in free fall, if you're, uh, then you don't feel it. So the gravitational force that the gravity wave carries stretches and squeezes things like the moon stretches and squeezes the oceans on the earth to produce the tides. So this gravitational wave is space or space-time itself forming waves? Yes. So it's a, it is, can be thought of, I think most nicely as a stretching and squeezing of space and everything in that space then gets stretched and squeezed. As the wave passes through me, say from my face, uh, fr- front of my face to the back, it stretches my face, say horizontally, and squeezes my face vertically. <laughs> and then at the next uh, uh, moment, it stretches vertically and squeezes horizontally. But it's such a tiny stretch and squeeze that you'll never notice it. Nobody says, you, what's, what's with that expression? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so... Is it? It almost sounds like an earthquake, where where the the material itself is moving. It is very much like an earthquake. It's an earthquake in the structure of space and then the stretching and squeezing of space. So it it changes the length of whatever it passes through. It tries to change the length of whatever it passes through. Now, we can resist rather easily because it's a tiny stretch and squeeze. And so your face is stretched and squeezed by less than uh, it would have been if they hadn't been resisting. So you built, you and your colleagues who also won the prizes and a, a thousand other people spent decades building devices that would, one of which would finally stretch and squeeze in a detectable way so you knew that you were experiencing a gravitational wave. Is that is that right? That, that's right. But it, the problem was not to get it to stretch and squeeze in a detectable way. It was to prevent anything else from stretching and squeezing and hiding the effect of the wave. And that was where the huge effort was. So how did you eliminate all the other things that could stretch and squeeze it? And what are they? Well, that took a half a century and a, and a billion dollars <laughs> and a thousand people. Half a so, century, a billion dollars and a thousand people. So I've, I've read that a truck passing by a 10 miles away could exert some kind of force on your instrument and, and you had to eliminate that effect. Is that right? So that's not so hard with a truck because... Our instrument is sensitive only to waves that oscillate at, uh, say, roughly 100 oscillations per second. And that truck far away is moving, is not oscillating. So uh. the, bigger, the bigger problem is with raindrops or wind raindrops. pounding the ground. <laughs> raindrops or wind pounding the ground, and then the ground oscillates, and that takes our instruments and shakes our instruments by something like a billion times more than, than the uh, strength of the gravity waves. So we have to isolate our instruments from the shaking of the ground. So you're getting into an area that's also amazing to me. Essentially, your instrument was a long pipe, right? 
two had two pipes at right angles to each other. And the laser beam shooting down the pipe. Would, that would measure how much the pipe changed in length. Well, yes, but what it's really doing is because the pipe will resist changing. What we do is we hang mirrors from overhead supports at the ends of the pipe. And they, those mirrors can swing back and forth, and the gravity wave pushes them together and pushes them apart. Oh, so it's not the pipe that gets longer or shorter. It's the distance between the mirrors. The distance between the mirrors, because space is stretching and squeezing, and, and the mirrors and, move with space. And there was this wonderful idea that I hadn't heard about until just recently, is one of the improvements on this device was to make um, a laser beam shoot back and forth between the two mirrors hundreds of times, so that that effectively made it as though the pipe were hundreds of times longer. And, and it was already four kilometers long. That's right. And so we get up to uh, something like a thousand kilometers for the total distance the light has traveled uh, as it bounces back and forth. So you saved a billion dollars right there. Yeah. <laughs> a lot more than a billion dollars right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've got, and, and by the way, this device is called LIGO, or is that the name of the project? Or are they the same? That's, they're the same. LIGO is short for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Until we had the front part of this conversation, I wouldn't have known what all those words <laughs> applied to. But now I get it. It's the light going through the pipe and hitting the mirrors and measuring how much they're separated by. But the interesting thing is the difference between how far apart they are before the gravitational wave hits and how far apart they are after it hits is so minuscule. How, how, how big a distance do they travel? So the mirror motions are about one one-hundredth of the diameter of the nucleus of an atom. Oh, my God. Now, the nucleus is 100,000 times smaller than an atom. And so this is, that means that this is 10 million times smaller than an atom. And when you think that the mirrors, that the laser beams are bouncing off of, uh, those mirrors that... Uh, that move under the action of the gravity wave, they're made of atoms, and the surface of the mirrors are rough at the atomic scale. You're looking for motions of the mirrors themselves that are 10 million times smaller than each of those little atoms that's in this surface of the mirror. So that, that's weird. That sounds like you, you, you raised the question in my mind, of how do you know that you, the mirror is moving and you're not just pushing a few atoms around on the surface of the mirror? Oh, that's part of the problem. <laughs> so You know, I'm getting gladder and gladder I'm not on your team. <laughs> the event itself that led you to know you had discovered gravity waves was the collision of two black holes. Two black holes a billion light years from Earth. So... What was happening on Earth when they collided? When they collided on here on Earth, the very first multicelled form of life had arisen and was just beginning to spread over the Earth. And by the time the wave had left the colliding black holes and traveled across the universe 
to touch the edge of our galaxy. Where, where were we on Earth at that point? Well, that's uh, 50,000 years ago, and that's when we were sharing the Earth with, uh, the, our ancestors were sharing the Earth with the Neanderthals. And then it, it crossed the galaxy in 50,000 years, and, and you got it. It arrived three days before we were supposed to start our search for gravitational waves with these instruments. You hadn't even, you weren't even looking for the, for the wave at that point. Not really, uh, because we were tuning, we, the team, this is the experimental team. I was not involved in this at that stage, but the team was tuning these instruments. They're very complex because there's so many things that can go wrong. They're extremely complex. They were tuning the instruments in preparation for starting the search. And it was at night, and there was, the instruments were just sitting there. The signal came in. Did you, need a, did you need a big event like two black holes colliding? We needed it to be big enough for us to be, even see anything. And the strongest waves, and this is something that seemed pretty obvious to me already by 1980, long before we did this, would become from black holes colliding. And the reason is that you not only need something that's heavy, but something that's very compact, so its own gravity is extremely strong. And uh, in 1980, we understood this, and we estimated the strengths of the waves, and we were lucky. We had no right for it to be uh, this good, but the, we were right on in our estimates, my colleagues and I, in around 1980. An amazing story, it's topping off with the fact that you didn't expect to detect anything, and there, there it was, what you'd been searching for all along. It, it, I, I've heard it said that this is going to be a new kind of astronomy, gravitational wave astronomy, rather than astronomy looking through telescopes at light or radio waves. What will you be able to do with gravitational astronomy that you can't do now? You can see those parts of our universe, including black holes, that are not made from matter, but instead are made from warped space and time. That's what a black hole is made from. So electromagnetic waves, light, radio waves, x-rays, they're all produced by oscillating electrical charges, which are part of ordinary matter. Black holes are made from warped space and time, and so they can't produce electromagnetic waves. Uh, they have no electric charge. They produce only gravitational waves. So there's a whole warped side to our universe, as I like to call it. Objects and phenomena, they're made partly or entirely from warped space and time. It's a side we had never, ever seen before. Black holes are a big part of that. But it's not the whole story. We've all heard black holes referred to, but I didn't know there was a whole zoo of other animals that that we can't see and and that can be detected through gravitational waves. What, what would they be like? Well, so the most interesting thing is the very birth of our universe. Where did the matter that as our universe is that we see, that we are made from, that stars and the earth are made from, where did it come from? It came from what we call the Big Bang singularity. The singularity, the thing at the very beginning, was made from warped space-time. And so, and the 
only form of radiation that could have been produced then and traveled to us unscathed by all the dense hot matter of the young universe is gravitational waves. It's our only tool for actually seeing the birth of the universe, and that is the holy grail of gravitational wave astronomy. When you see a star or a galaxy with the, with the astronomy that we presently use, you know where it is. Do you know where things are when you detect them with gravitational waves? Or do you just get this thing, this thing that hits your sensor and you say something happened a billion years ago, but we don't know where it is? We've worked very hard to, to localize where these sources are. We don't do very well. We can tell where this signal is coming from to a region a, a little larger than the sun or the moon uh -huh. uh, on the sky. So that's an, it's a small patch on the sky, but far worse localization than you get with light or with uh, radio waves today. How do we do that? By the delay in the time of arrival of the signal, at different gravity wave detectors at different locations on Earth. So the first signal that came in, it arrived initially at our gravity LIGO gravity wave detector near New Orleans in Louisiana. And then seven milliseconds later, seven one-thousandths of a second later, it arrived at our gravity wave detector just east of Seattle in Washington State. Seattle is roughly north and somewhat west of New Orleans. So that told us that the signal was coming from the south toward the north. And actually, uh, looking at it much more carefully, we can say that the signal really actually entered the Earth somewhere near the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, traveled up through the Earth, and arrived first in Louisiana and then seven milliseconds later in Washington State. So if you had more of these installations around the Earth, would you be able to pinpoint things even more precisely about the direction they're coming from? Yes, precisely, we would. And so we now have three of these instruments. There was an instrument that has been under construction almost as long as LIGO that is now operating in Italy, near Pisa, Italy, uh, that was created by a team called the Virgo project, which is a team that originally began with Fr France and Italy, but has expanded to include other European countries, particularly the Netherlands. And so we now have three instruments. There is a fourth instrument that will come online soon, within the next uh, year or, or so, that is in Japan, and a fifth instrument in India that is actually an American-Indian collaboration and this will give us much better ability to tell where the signal is coming from. This is an extraordinary advance in human understanding of where we live, the, the, the universe. Now, this may sound like a trivial question, but I don't think it is, and I don't think you'll think it is because you're concerned with communicating science, I think, every bit as much as, as I am. This is basic science. It's trying to understand how things work. It doesn't necessarily lead to a product. It's not going to cure a disease. It's not, it's not going to make a, a material necessarily. At least it doesn't sound like it at the moment. But Einstein's work 
didn't seem to produce anything either until a hundred years later or 74, however many years later it was, we were able to have GPS, which we couldn't have had without Einstein's understanding, as I understand it. Have you thought in the years you've been working on this, how much more it might bring to us than the great joy of understanding something about the universe we never knew before? Would it lead to a kind, a new thing like, like Einstein's GPS? These signals are so difficult to detect that in order to detect them, it's been necessary to develop new technologies. And uh, so some of those technologies and techniques have gone off and influenced other areas of science and, and, uh, and technology. For example, uh, the technique that it is now used to stabilize a laser so that its uh, frequency of oscillation of the light is very, very constant, doesn't change much. Its color is very, very pure. The so-called Pound-Drever-Hall technique came out of LIGO, and it is today the best way to stabilize a laser. But that's a minor thing compared to what we are learning about the universe. That was not the motivation. These are byproducts, and nice byproducts. Uh, but the real motivation, the way I like to say it, is that uh, when we look back on the uh, era of the Renaissance and ask what it was our ancestors gave to us from that era, it's a cultural the answer is cultural, largely. It's great music, great art, great architecture, and the scientific method. And in a few hundred years, when our ancestors look back on our era and ask what was, what is it that we gave to them, I think the answer is, a large part of the answer is going to be an understanding of the universe around us. Thorne's appreciation of culture doesn't stop at the Renaissance. For several years now, he's worked with musicians, artists, filmmakers, and even with me to bring his passion for understanding the universe through science to a wider audience. More when we come back. The sponsor of Clear and Vivid is the Kavli Foundation a partner in the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The 2020 Kavli Prize laureates will be announced on May 27th with the participation of the World Science Festival and the festival's co-founder, Brian Green. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Arts and Education, and the Kavli Foundation. In our next podcast, we'll speak with two of the winners of the 2020 Kavli Prize to learn why finding out why peppers are hot could lead to new pain-killing drugs and how black holes can blow up a galaxy. Fortunately, not the one we're in. I'll also talk with one of the Kavli Prize judges about the challenging task of choosing who should be honored. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, 
You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kip Thorne. You've been spending the last few years immersing yourself in the culture, becoming part of the artistic culture in movies, working with composers, working with visual artists, to explore the themes that you've explored in science. And I think I know why you're doing it. Why are you doing it? Well, I'm doing it for several reasons. One is it's fun. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly is. (laughs) Another is that uh, these are wonderful tools for inspiring people about science. Tools, in some cases, that have not been much used in this way. And uh, I love to inspire people about science. They're also tools to some extent, for educating people about science. Though I think the inspiration is the more powerful aspect of it, uh, but educating as well. Look, I'm 80, and I've had a career of a half a century as a conventional physicist. And for the next half century, I decided, and I decided this some, some years ago, a decade or so ago, for the next half century, I wanted to do something different, something fun, something that would inspire. So this is what I'm doing. Well, I've experienced that firsthand because I remember with such pleasure when I was playing, getting ready to play Richard Feynman in the play QED, 
I you sat with me at Caltech in a, a little uh, on a little bench, and I I remember you drawing gluon tubes for me and explaining <laughs> what they were, and and it was it was the the fact that you took the time to try to get me to some understanding of it. I really appreciated it. I was impressed by it. And and you're such a good explainer, too. Well, it was a real pleasure. It was also an enormous pleasure to go to uh, QED, your uh, your performances, and to uh, have conversation, several conversations with you afterwards in front of That's the right, audience. in front of the audience, this. I know. I, I don't know if you, fun. were you there the opening night when... The, as, as the character Feynman, I raise a question, but it's a, it's a hypothetical question, which I'm about to answer as the character in a second. But students from Caltech were filling the theater on the opening night. And I, I, I asked the question, and a, and a kid in the 10th row started to answer the question for me out, out loud. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I most remember about opening night was a little later after uh, the performance, I was chatting with Joan Feynman, Richard Feynman's sister, and Joan said it was so wonderful to be with Richard again. Oh, how nice. That's so nice. And and one night Stephen Hawking came to see the play, and that was a treat. And that reminds me of the bet you had with Stephen Hawking about black holes. I don't I only remember that you had a bet with him. <laughs> what was the bet about? Well, the bet was whether or not Cygnus X1 was a black hole. Cygnus X1 was a source of X-rays on the sky that had been discovered by a new kind of telescope, uh, the Uhuru telescope, spearheaded by Ricardo Giacconi. And they had uh, discovered Cygnus X1, a source of X-rays, and they had determined approximately where it was on the sky, and there was a star there, and they were guessing that, in fact, the x-rays were coming from gas being pulled off this star and onto the black hole, and the star was in orbit around the black hole. And so the question was, is this really a black hole? And, uh, and you, I did, bet, you, you didn't think it was? Uh, Stephen bet no, and I bet yes. Oh. And so I won, but uh, Stephen uh, signed off after about uh, 20, 20 years he signed off. It took that long to be absolutely sure. Stephen regarded this as his as his insurance policy because he was responsible more than anybody else for the theory of black holes. Well, he and Einstein who developed relativity. But uh, and so if it turned out to be a black hole, that was a great triumph for his for Stephen's theory. If it turned out not to be a black hole, well, he wanted at least some sort of recompense, and so it would be winning this bet. So what was at stake in the bet? <laughs> well, in the modern era, this is a little embarrassing, but it was a, state, a bet over uh, where the payoff was in, on this bet was this, that I received was a subscription to Playboy magazine. <laughs> <laughs> So it, the the other things that you've done are so interesting. The the big hit movie uh, Interstellar was a long and and, uh, and deep collaboration between you and uh, the director yeah, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, and as I remember in the movie, there were really speculative, far out ideas, including I believe time travel. 
So time travel, as a matter of fact, I was reading something this morning in which you said the poorly understood laws of quantum gravity control whether or not backward time travel is possible. So this business of time travel is interesting in terms of the interplay between science communication to non-scientists and uh, scientific research. I got into it because Carl Sagan, close friend of mine, ran the novel version of what became his movie Contact Past Me. And uh, he had in there his heroine, who became Jodie Foster, traveling through a worm, through a a black hole. I told him you need to use a wormhole uh, instead and explained what a wormhole was. So he changed the changed this. Triggered by that, I started thinking about wormholes and realized that if you had a wormhole and you moved one mouth out at high speed and brought it back, it would turn into a time machine. And suddenly I was thinking about creation of time machines. And then I realized that if you ask yourself questions that are seemingly very science fiction-like. We don't have the, exper- the technology to build time machines or try to build time machines, but we can ask what the laws of physics say about the capabilities of the best engineers of an infinitely advanced civilization. And that enables you to probe the laws of physics very deeply. And so this is what I and Stephen Hawking and others began to do asking these seemingly crazy questions. And what we discovered was that no matter how a very advanced civilization tries to make a time machine, when the civilization first tries to turn it on, there will be a gigantic explosion that may destroy the time machine, preventing it from ever working. So there are a couple of things I have to ask you (laughs) along the way. How do you define a wormhole and who came up with that name? Did you name it? <laughs> no, I didn't name it. So a wormhole, the best way to describe it first is you have a sphere that looks like a crystal ball that's sitting here with me in my office at home in Pasadena. And you've got another one sitting with you in New York City where you are located. And I can just go into my uh, crystal ball and I come out of yours immediately. So it's a... That sounds much more convenient than the New York subway system, but how in the... It's much, much more convenient. How in the world could that conform in any way to the laws of (laughs) physics? Well, it's something that general relativity by itself would allow. It's a route through a higher dimension to get from one place to another. The way uh, Romilly, the physicist, uh, one of the physicists in the movie Interstellar explained it, was he took a sheet of paper, he bent it over, folded it over, and said, look, the two uh, pieces of the paper uh, where they're folded over are very close to each other. And then he stuck a pencil through and said, now I've made a route from the upper part to the lower part, and that's a wormhole. It's a shortcut, you didn't have to travel around the piece of paper to get from uh, one side to the other. You went down that pencil that stuck through. <laughs> that, that pause, that pause is me trying to catch up. <laughs> Kip, I could go on talking to you until it gets dark outside. We usually end the show with seven quick questions that are harmless but fun. Are you, are you up for it? I'm up for it. Okay. 
Number one, what do you wish you really understood? The birth of the universe. Hmm. How did it come about? How? Yeah. How? Do you think you're going to find out or somebody is going to find out with gravitational waves being studied? I think that uh, a combination of observations and gravitational waves will be a big part of that. And theoretical work manipulating the fundamental laws of physics and probing to figure out what the, these laws of quantum gravity really are. That combination will bring us the answer sometime around the middle of this century. I think it's going to, it, it will take a few more decades, it's my guess, but uh, it might come faster. Wow, that's pretty soon. That's, that, that, I mean, to understand something so fundamental. Well, we've been struggling for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> I think it depends on what your goal is. <laughs> <laughs> you mean how close you are to tearing your hair out? <laughs> yeah, how close you are to tearing your hair out, whether you really want to tr put in an enormous amount of effort to help them to understand, uh, or whether you're just totally frustrated and you don't want to be bothered. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think the key thing, really, uh, is, is to try to walk through this uh, in some detail if you and the other person has time. I suppose they need a certain amount of curiosity. Yes, not absolutely. Be, not be wedded to their version of facts. If they're too wedded to the version of facts, I'm afraid I'm a little impatient person. <laughs> I very politely don't move on to something else. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, boy. I can't think of a good answer. Strangest question anyone ever I asked. I think you've asked yourself some of the strangest questions I've ever heard. <laughs> so you, you don't need it any, from an outside source. Yeah, yeah no, no I, that is true. I mean, I, maybe the bet, better way to say it is I have discovered that seemingly strange questions can sometimes lead you to deep understanding. That's great, great. John Wheeler, who was uh, my mentor, is a... PhD student. He had a quotation from Gertrude Stein. It goes something like this. You look at something that is strange and it seems stranger and stranger and stranger until suddenly it doesn't seem strange anymore. It's just obvious. It's not the precise version, but... Uh, yeah, that's great. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> Try to change the subject. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> you have to break in and, yeah, and try to yeah, carry that, it off in some right, other direction. <laughs> right. So let's say you're sitting next to someone at a dinner party who you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? I normally ask a question. And if asking questions doesn't elicit anything, then I will introduce some topic myself uh, that I think they might find intriguing. But usually asking questions... What gives you confidence? I get confidence. It's such a general question. <laughs> it, it, kind of, it, it kind of calls forth what do you mean yeah. by confidence? And I'm not trying to yeah. put that in, because it could be confidence <laughs> in various ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, confidence in what? I get confidence in uh, things in science. Mm. When I have 
observational or experimental data, but I also need for me to have some physical understanding, some theoretical understanding to go along with it. But experimental and observational data are absolutely essential to having confidence in something. Let me just say that one of the most interesting aspects of being a scientist, uh, particularly the kind of scientist I am, is finding yourself proved wrong many times a day when you really thought something went one way and you discover it went another way. And it generates a form of humility that I think is really, really useful in life, uh, recognizing that it's so, so easy to be wrong. One of the things I admired about Feynman was that he seemed to attack his own ideas before anybody else had a chance to. Do you do, you do that too? Uh, yes, I do. Absolutely. That's part of the humility. But it's also, again, as John Wheeler used to say to me, the best physicists are the ones who make the most mistakes the most rapidly on their way to the truth. <laughs> and uh, attacking your own ideas is... Uh, the best way to find your mistakes. <laughs> right. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Well, there was the first one was at age eight, when I couldn't read hardly at all, but I discovered a book about Freddy the Pig. And it was so fascinating that I took off in reading. Suddenly I had a motivation, and there were, there were 21 of these books uh, by Walter R. Brooks. Uh, that were so wonderful, and it transformed my life. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. Kip, this has been such such fun for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's really been fun for me, too. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Kip Thorne was awarded both the Kavli Prize and the Nobel Prize for his work on the detection of gravitational waves. Now Professor Emeritus at Caltech, he's the author of several books, including Black Holes and Time Warps, Einstein's Outrageous Legacy, and The Science of Interstellar, which is his account of the making of the Christopher Nolan hit movie for which Kip was the science advisor and executive producer. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, a special episode of Clear and Vivid 
in which I talk with two of the winners of the 2020 Kavli Prize, as well as one of the judges who had the near-impossible task of choosing them. We'll be publishing the episode right after the Kavli Prize laureates are announced on May 27th. Listen in to find out why figuring out why hot peppers are hot could lead to new pain-killing drugs, how putting a tiny black hole in your gas tank would give your car mileage of a billion miles per gallon, and why building the most powerful electron microscopes was a little like baking a cake when you can't see what's happening inside it, but much, much harder. Next time on Clear and Vivid. <laughs>